teaching on some subjects, you need to have a motivation step to get the audience listening and interested in the topic. Something to arouse the interest. But you don't need a motivation step when you're speaking on sex. In fact, sex is the motivation step most people use to get the interested in other topics. To arouse interest in second-rate plays or films, sex is used, or to amuse the audience by pathetically weak and unfunny comedians, they use sex, or to advertise and sell anything from bars of soap to car tyres to sheep drench. Anything can be sold with sex. Because sex actually is a natural appetite for us. Of all creatures, and we are humans, are creatures made by God, we all share in this natural appetite. It's like drinking and eating. It's just part of our nature, part of our created order, part of the way in which we are made to live in this world. And yet our natural appetites are distorted by sin. What God created as good still remains good. What God created as good is nothing to feel guilty or ashamed about. When people talk of eating food in terms of being naughty, it's ridiculous. Food is to be eaten. That's to be received with thanksgiving. Uh, there's nothing naughty about eating chocolate. There's everything very nice about eating chocolate. Don't go on guilt trips on because you're eating chocolate. But of course we can always distort any of our natural appetites. Because of our sinfulness, we use for evil the very things that God has created for good. And so now we can use sex for evil. And we can easily feel guilt and shame about sex. And our world is so confused that we need to listen to the word of God to get clear answers. And we need clear answers not just for ourselves, but for our families and frankly for our society around about us, which is in total confusion, deep hurt and great family dysfunctionality. A couple of years ago, I published a book called Pure Sex which is uh, featured in our bookshop uh, and uh, I understand you can get a copy of it later if you wish to do so. Uh, it's a great book and it's a great read. Tony Payne wrote it um, and it's really worth having. The difficulty with the book is it's very hard to sit in the train and read it with a cover like that. Uh, it's helpful to have a little brown cover or hide it in your Bible or something else as you go through the train reading Pure Sex. But today, that's, the, that's what we're looking at because the passage we've come to as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount is there in verse 27 where Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now when Jesus referred to this commandment, he was not making it easier for us to keep. He's not making it easier for people to obey because that would be contrary to the whole tenor of the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. He's already said that we're not to relax the least commandment. Uh, you pick it up there in verse 19, verse 19 of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's not seeking us to relax any commandment. That's very common in our society today, to have a, a sliding moral value system that moves with the force of popular opinion. It's very common in our sinfulness to rationalise and excuse ourselves by moving the moral goalposts, 
by making up rules to fit our behaviour rather than changing our behaviour to fit in with God's rules and God's goals. But relaxing the law and the law's requirements is not the way to address our sinfulness. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And it's hard to see the commandment on adultery as being one of the least of the commandments. After all, it is one of the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses and it reflects the very nature of the faithful God, the one who gives his promise and keeps his promise. Well, the commandment, no adultery, is all about giving your promise and keeping your promise. So if we're not to relax the least of the commandments, we're certainly not to relax this one. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is frankly plain and unambiguous. In the Hebrew text, it really is just two words, no adultery. Now, which word don't you understand? And the combination of them, what is there to understand? It is absolutely straightforward. God meant it, Jesus upheld it, and we're to obey it. Not with a pharisaic sophistry which would minimise the law, which would look for loopholes in the law, like President Bill Clinton some years ago with his disclaimer saying, I have not had sexual relationships with that woman, referring to Monica Lewinsky, when it was just a pure technicality. But we are to obey it with the genuineness of reborn hearts eager to keep God's word in all its applications. So Jesus maximizes the intention of the law by discussing lust. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He addresses men here, not because women don't have their own parallel version of this sin, but because the commandments were addressed to men in the first place and men have to take responsibility in the second place and thirdly, all the disciples he was talking to at the moment were men as well. But the key point is the internalising of the law that magnifies its intention, that maximises it. The law was meant to lead to good works but people fail to keep the law or do good works. Now, with the coming of the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit brings regeneration, such that the law is now written on our hearts, not just on tablets of stone. And the Holy Spirit is to move us to keep the law that he has written on our hearts. It's the same law, you shall not commit adultery, but with different people. People who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, changed to want to do what the law says rather than want to avoid what the law says. And so the righteousness of the disciples will, chapter 5, verse 20, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees were always looking to how to avoid the law, always looking for the loophole, always minimising what the law requires, whereas in the kingdom of heaven you are going to, by the Spirit, maximise whatever the law is saying. Now, to do justice to Jesus' teaching will require, first, making it easier, and then, second, making it much, much harder. 
The making it easier has to do with the English translations. See, the New International Version has anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, whereas the English Standard Version that we have before us talks about looking with lustful intent, which is much better than looks at a woman lustfully. For the Greek construction has a very clear purpose intended in it. It's looking with the intention of lust, looking with the intention, the purpose of lust. It's not condemning a man for having a lustful thought, but rather condemning those who go out of their way to arouse such lust. And so our translation has tried to capture that sense of purpose and intention. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. We have enough problem with our guilt already without adding more guilt than the text actually meant. However, the Greek text actually condemns something else. It's everyone who looks in order for her to lust. You won't find it in any English translation. Uh, You will find it in some footnotes of some commentaries. But I can assure you that is actually what the Greek says. Now, the reason you don't have it in any English translation is because most people don't know what to do with that. I understand what it means to look lustfully. I understand what it means to look in order to lust. But what does it mean to look upon a woman so that she lusts? It seems a strange and bizarre thing to be said. But that is what Jesus was saying in the Greek of Matthew chapter 5. It's not really just about men having lustful thoughts, but a man, a man flirting and enticing or encouraging a woman to have lustful thoughts for him. Jesus is saying that the man who has already started seducing, already started arousing a woman, whether it's just a matter of flirtatious play that will never be fulfilled, or part of his intention and plan to satisfy his desires, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The passage, wrongly translated, has been used of Satan to accuse and shame men to feel guilty about their normal sexual appetite, when it's really about our sexually distorted, adulterous appetites. You can see how in our sinfulness, like the Pharisees of old, we can rejoice to minimise the commandment of Jesus. I mean, it's only condemning flirtatious seduction. It's not condemning lustful thoughts, so I can enjoy a degenerate thought life as much as I like. It's not condemning looking to lust, so I can enjoy pornography or striptease or whatever. See, Philip's done me a great service here. Now that I've discovered it means that, I can go and be degenerate in my head as much as I like, which is not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to be accurate with what Jesus said, which is a different thing, isn't it? I'm not trying to reduce or to say that any of those things are now right or proper or appropriate. I'm just saying what Jesus was saying was that if you've already started in the process, trying to arouse, trying by flirting to interest a woman in you who is not your wife, then you've already done it in your heart. We're to take Jesus' words as he teaches us to take the Old Testament words with full seriousness and gravity without making people feel guilty for completely normal sexual urges and appetites, but without minimising Jesus' meaning at all. 
There is a long step between the beginning of sexual interest that you are arousing in the other person and committing adultery. But in fact, there's no step. You've already crossed the line in the way in which you've treated the other person, in the attitude of your heart and mind. And so let me make it much, much harder for you. For we're trying to know what Jesus meant, not what would be easier for us. And so Jesus goes on in verse 29 and 30 talking about eye gouging and cutting off your hand. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, he says. Uh, For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, it's very hard to think of a more dramatic hyperbole than these. It's really impossible for a preacher to be more emphatic than the text at this point. We preachers, we've got a great capacity for saying the emphatic hyperbole, haven't we? We've got the, this is the most important text in all the Bible. Have you not heard a preacher say that? There, every third week, this is the most important text. We're very good at kind of making it more than it is. But you can't make this more serious than it is. I can't think of an illustration that is actually worse than what is being said here. See, what price would you place upon your eye? What price would you place upon your hand? What would, how much money would you give to have your hand chopped off? This is why, by the way, the Islamic law, the Sharia law, that chops off the hand of a thief is so fundamentally unjust. For it goes beyond an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, For what you steal is always of less value than your hand. Think of the most valuable jewel in all the world. If you gave me a choice between it and my hand, I'd take my hand every time. I wouldn't lose my hand for anything by natural choice. There's nothing more valuable than my hand. So to chop the hand of a thief off is to do more damage to him than he has ever done. And therefore, it is fundamentally unjust, as much of the Sharia law is. But come back here. You see, when Jesus talks of tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand, he's using the most extreme examples to make his point, isn't he? For Jesus, the problem of adultery is so great that life itself is in the balance. Eternal life is in the balance. It's better to be maimed than to commit adultery. It's better to lose two of the most important parts of your body, your eye and your hand, than to commit adultery and be thrown into hell. Uh, That's because Jesus, unlike so many people, takes hell seriously. As I suggested to you last week, Jesus is the only hellfire preacher of the Bible. He's the only one who uses the term. He's the one who, it would seem, created the term. He believed in it and in its horror. 
There's no point claiming to be a follower of Jesus while denying what he taught. Jesus taught that hell was to be avoided at all costs. Tear out your eye, cut off your hand, but don't go to hell. It's that bad. Friends, how can I warn you as seriously as Jesus warned you? Don't go to hell. It's an appalling thing to think that so many of our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues and heart-wrenchingly our own families may be going to hell. It's so appalling that we're tempted to deny the very existence of hell. I can't imagine my brother, my sister, my uncle, my, my neighbour going there. It's easier for me to say there is no hell than to cope with the emotions that somebody I love may be going there. It's so appalling that Jesus himself bore the punishment of hell in order to spare us going there. It's that bad. And adultery will take you to hell. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to the evil one's lies. Oh, you will not die. That's what he said to the woman in the garden. We've been suffering ever since because she believed the lie. It's only natural. I mean, humans weren't created to be monogamous, were we? Yes, we were. Well, everyone's doing it. Well, that's terribly sad, isn't it? But that everyone's doing it's got nothing to do with whether I should do it. One of the most stupid reasons for ever doing anything is because everybody else is doing it. Didn't your mother teach you that? Everybody at school's doing it, so you're different. That's the answer to that, isn't it? Or that awful, stupid 20th century lie which still rattles on into the 21st century. But we love each other. You cannot love your neighbour and commit adultery with his wife at the same time. You cannot love your wife and commit adultery with another woman at the same time. You cannot love a woman and commit adultery with her at the same time because you are not treating her as she deserves but are misleading her into hell. Love, genuine love, real love, love always wants the best for the other person. And the best never compromises marriage. It never destroys faithfulness. It never risks the judgment of God in hell. There's another four-letter word that does that. It also starts with the letter L, and it's lust. We must never confuse love and lust in this regard. Friends, the misuse of sex is not the only thing that will take us to hell. Being angry with your brother without cause will take you to hell. Uh, breaking any of the commandments of God 
will take us to hell. But do not be deceived by that. For an adultery will take you to hell. And not just the formal final action that Bill Clinton so pharisaically claimed to have avoided, but the whole intention, the whole action, the whole desire and purpose of seducing the other person who is not your spouse, the whole playing with the idea with them and arousing the interest in them, that is adultery and that will take you to hell. Death is more certain than taxes. And for Jesus, the judgment of God is as certain as death. For Jesus, death spells hell for all those outside the kingdom of heaven. And hell is an awesome absolute for all adulterers to understand. So then, how are you living with your lust? That lust that can tempt you now or the lust that you have acted upon in the past? I want to suggest to you four things. Firstly, acceptance of the appetite. We are created beings, creatures of flesh and blood, of brains and hormones, of hunger and thirst, just like any animal in the animal world. And so we have sexual drives that respond to stimuli. There's no need to feel guilt, there's no need to feel shame, There's no need to feel horror. There's no need to feel surprise. But rather we should rejoice in God's good creation that we feel the way we do in the bodies that God has created for us. Secondly, we need to recognise the reality of our guilt. And so the acceptance of guilt is a critical part of dealing with it. Just as the denial of guilt leads us into deeper and deeper sinfulness. Sin distorts all of God's good creation, including our sexual nature. So don't be surprised that your sexual nature is contaminated by sin as well. Lust and immorality, fornication and adultery are all part of the disfigured sinful nature. Sexual immorality and adultery come from within us, says Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Out of our very heart come these things that defile us. I actually do not need pornography. I do not need a dirty movie. I do not need... It is within me. Just as we mustn't deny our sexual nature, so also we mustn't deny our sinful nature nor that of our sinful actions. Especially we mustn't ignore and distort God's word in order to rationalise or excuse our sinfulness. 
we must confess our sinfulness, bring it out into the open, deal with it, and then move on. Which brings us, thirdly, to the acceptance of forgiveness. We need to accept the wonderful forgiveness that God has won for us in the death and resurrection of his one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We can confess our sins and accept our guilt because we know our sin has been paid for, because we know that our guilt has been taken away through his sacrifice on our behalf. We can confess it without fear if we know of this wonderful forgiveness. If you don't know of the forgiveness, then you're always tempted to cover up. When confronted as children by your parents or by a teacher for the thing that you had done wrong, wasn't there an automatic knee-jerk reaction, cover-up, denial, no, I didn't do it, it was somebody else, I wasn't there at the time, I had to do it. There's always the excuses rather than saying, yes, I did the wrong thing, for we fear punishment. And the fear of punishment gets us to hide rather than confess. But when you know of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, your punishment has already been paid for. You are not going to be punished. The perfect love of God drives out fear so that we can now say, yes, I've done it. I'm ashamed. I'm sorry. But I don't have to hide. We can confess without fear if we know of this wonderful forgiveness rather than be giving over to the covering up and pretend that we've never done anything like that or to pretend such things are really, well, they're not really bad. It's not really wrong. We can say, yes, it's really wrong. And yes, I have done it. Do you know this forgiveness of God that enables you to face the truth like this? To be able to say, yeah, it's really wrong. And yes, I am guilty. The death of Jesus paying for all your sins, even these unmentionable sins, even the sins of years and years and years ago that you kind of hope are being forgotten, Though every now and then at three o'clock in the morning when you wake up with a nightmare, they're there still in your mind. Even the unmentionable sins of years ago, especially those that stick in your mind and your conscience accusing you, do you know of this forgiveness? If you don't know of this forgiveness, then in a moment I'll tell you how you can be set free, fully forgiven of all that is past. But before I do that, notice the fourthly, the acceptance of difference. For in accepting the forgiveness that Jesus has won on the cross, we must also accept the reality of living differently now that we're forgiven. We cannot ask for forgiveness in order to go on living in the way in which we were before. Yes, I've done all these things that are wrong now. Please forgive me so that I can go back and do more of them. I'm not actually asking for forgiveness at all. I'm asking for a license to do wrong. That, that's not on. That can't be. If I'm asking for forgiveness, it's so that I will no longer live in that way. 
And so, we ask for forgiveness for all our sins, knowing that we no longer want to go on in sin. And so we ask for the change that the Spirit of God gives, the change that will write God's law on our hearts and move us to be obedient to it, so that we will no longer have that kind of Pharisaic righteousness always looking for the loophole, minimising what the law says, avoiding what the law says, but now we'll have the Christian righteousness trying to find still more ways of applying God's law to our hearts and to our lives, living like God in faithfulness to our promises and our undertakings, giving our word and keeping our word, especially to our spouse. It's a strange thing about our politicians, isn't it? They keep walking out on their wives, their husbands, and they keep telling the electorate, you can trust us. If they won't keep their word to their wife, why on earth would we think they're going to keep their word to us, the electorate? The faithfulness of a man, of a woman, to their marriage partner is a fundamental of the character of integrity which enables you to trust the person. For a faithful person is a trustworthy person, and so you can someone you can trust. The adulterer, by definition, is an untrustworthy person, an unfaithful person, whom we cannot trust. But, of course, the journalists, who are in the same pig swallow as the politicians, see that it's not right to ever tell us about the married life of the politicians. Though next election, you'll see the politicians bringing out their families because they know family solidarity is a sign of faithfulness for the electorate to vote for you, even though they'll put their wife away later. It's like that over and again, you see. So let me return. Do you know this forgiveness that will enable you to face the truth about yourself and have done with it? Do you know this changed way to live? Well, how can you have these things? How can you find the forgiveness that God has given us? It's on the back of the outline there in that prayer that I'm going to conclude with. I can hardly talk about hell and forgiveness and adultery and our sinfulness without offering you that great opportunity of finding forgiveness in this prayer. It's in the box down the bottom where it says, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I know I need forgiveness. And it thanks God for the way of forgiveness, namely sending his son to die for me and rising again to give me new life. And so it prays, see the third paragraph, please forgive me. That's what I need. That's what Jesus died for me to have. But notice you can't just be forgiven and live the same way. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. I invite you to pray this with me in the quietness of your own heart to God as I pray out loud. Let's pray. Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you and I need forgiveness. 
Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. 